And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning. Welcome to The Real Investment Show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Of course, it is Monday again. As But the good news is we're wrapping up the month. That means uh, tomorrow is the last day of the month. We also get end of the month trading as well. So uh, one thing we talked about in this past weekend's newsletter, so go to the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, click on the newsletter link. And we discussed really kind of two big things this week in the newsletter. One, and we'll go into a little bit more of this this morning, is talking about yield curves. And you know, we've discussed on the show before about how yield curves work and what those messages are. Well, we're finally getting one of those initial messages from the yield curve. So we'll talk about that a bit this morning. But the other side of this was, is that markets had a very big sell-off last week. And again, you know, we had talked about the sell signal that we had gotten earlier in February, and we had talked about reducing cash, or, or sorry, raising cash and reducing equity risk at that time. And then the markets really didn't go anywhere for about a week or so. Um, the, the thing with sell signals is, is that's not uncommon. Markets can kind of hang up, you know, from a rally, kind of stay elevated for a bit while that sell signal kicks in. And then eventually prices kind of pull back towards gravity. And exactly what happened last week, we're sitting right on the 200-day moving average. This is now key support for the markets. We've got a hold in here. Uh, if markets are going to continue this kind of upward move, uh, you know, for the, you know, that's been going on now for a while since October, markets have been recovering. And so if we're going to continue to do that, we've got to hold this very critical level of support. Now, importantly, markets are oversold here short term. So as we said in the newsletter this weekend, look for a sellable rally this week. And this is why, you know, we want to pay attention to what the markets are saying. First of all, we still have our sell, both of our primary sell signals in place, both our, our MACD indicator as well as our money flow indicator. Both of those are still suggesting lower prices or at least a challenge to higher prices near term. In other words, money flows are going in the wrong direction right now. And not surprising, you have yields now approaching uh, almost 5% on the two-year treasury, 4.83%. The Federal Reserve forecasted rate, they're what's called their terminal rate. Now, this is where the Fed is expected to stop hiking rates, has now moved up to 5.4%. That also means yields are coming up on mortgages and credit card debt, all that kind of debt structure used in the economy. Those rates are all now coming up as well. That's going to slow economic consumption. This is why markets are beginning to struggle here a bit. But Markets are oversold enough here short term to get a little bit of a bounce. Use that rally that we get any today, tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, whatever kind of rally you get. Use that to sell into, raise a little bit of cash, reduce your equity risk as you need to just to maintain you know, some control over the volatility in the portfolio. But with tomorrow being the last day of the month, March 1st being the first day of the month, that's why it's called March the 1st, um, <laughs> That those are going to be the days where portfolios are rebalancing. So you're going to get month in rebalancing. You'll get beginning of the month balance. So that's why you should get a little bit of a rally here, probably up to 39.60, 39.80, possibly on the S and P. So if you get up to that level, again, just kind of rebalance your risk accordingly. Once we get into March, a little bit more. March tends to be. Um, kind of a weaker month. February and March tend to be weaker months of the six stronger months of the year. So again, markets here 
setup here to struggle a bit. But again, a bit of a rally here won't be surprising. So again, kind of use that accordingly as we kind of kind of start to work through this month. Again, we've got another FOMC meeting coming up this month in, in the month of March. And of course, the question will be, do they hike 50 basis points or 25 basis points? Now, if we go back to January, the expectation for a 50 basis point hike in March was zero. It's now up to 40%. So the odds of a more aggressive rate hike are certainly starting to come around now. And if you take a look at core PCE, we, you know, we just talked about the, the PCE numbers that came out much hotter than expected. And if you take a look at, at core PCE and particularly what the Fed looks at uh, in particular, that is still remaining very high here. So all these rate hikes so far have not really done much in terms of reducing that kind of core inflation that households deal with and what the Fed is watching most closely hasn't really had an impact to that. But be careful because that impact, the reason that impact hasn't occurred yet, as we've talked about before, is this lag effect of monetary policy. These rate hikes take a while to show up in the economy between nine and 12 months. So again, if you kind of just do math and go, go back in time on the calendar, the first rate hike was March of last year. We are now just getting into March of this year, a year later, where normally the first rate hike is now going to be felt by the economy. So again, all those rate hikes from last year, theoretically, not in the economy yet. It takes time to kind of filter through down to the consumer. That's going to start to show up here soon. So again, while we've seen some decline in housing, while we've seen some decline in, in auto loans, et cetera, again, that lag effect hasn't caught up yet. So there's still more of that potentially to come. So this is, this is why pay attention to what markets are saying here in particular. So again, big rally since the beginning of the year. That certainly got a lot of people kind of offsides, a lot of chasing after tax loss selling last year. But seeing a lot of that speculative attitude coming back into the markets, a lot of meme stocks, a lot of the retail trade chasing back to chasing those stocks that were down 70, 80 percent last year, chasing those stocks, the fundamentally weak ones. Of course, a lot of short covering as well. That's not really the signs of a healthy bull market rally that you want to see. Nonetheless, markets rallying but not really that healthy type of a, of a bull market rally that you want to see. So again, that's why there's risk here. So again, just things to pay attention to, but go to the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Uh, click on the newsletter link. We kind of go through all the technicals um, for that, as well as our recent trades, our market statistics are there as well. So kind of get you set up for this week, but just be careful here over the next couple of days. Again, should get a rally. Importantly, we need, and this is really the important thing, we need to rally off this 200-day moving average. If we don't, if we do close solidly below this 200-day moving average, that's going to really bring back the risk of a lower market over the course of this month, potentially retesting these lows from last December. So again, that's, that's the risk here. So very, very important level that we hold right now. Um, this rally this morning, futures are pointing up about 20 points on the S&P. It's not, it's not a really strong rally this morning. Dow futures up about 145, but it's a rally nonetheless. So we'll take that. Okay, so when we come back from the break, we'll talk a little bit about yield curves because, again, we, we've talked about this on the show before. So some of this, if, if you've been listening to the show for a while, is a little bit of a, of a recap about yield curves. Uh, yield curves always kind of dismissed when they don't immediately result in a recession or a bear market, but that's not how yield curves work. But there is one yield curve that is now beginning to signal that recession countdown that we've talked about before. It generally takes six to nine months once you start getting these signals to actually get into a recession. 
and now you're starting to get those early signals from the inverted yield curve, and it's not the inversion that matters. We've talked about this before. Now getting that first initial warning sign that a recession is approaching. So again, something else we'll have to deal with over the course of six to nine months. But this all kind of coincides with what the Fed is trying to do, what's happening in the economy, and ultimately what happens with your money. So we'll get into that this morning right after the break. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Get the latest newsletter. Everything I'm going to talk about is in that newsletter. Our daily market commentary is out as well as our be sure and subscribe to our Before the Bell channel. That's our new YouTube channel where we do our three minutes on markets and money every single morning. So we'll keep you up to date on everything. It's all there at the website for you, realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll be right back. news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com the real investment show youtube channel has all our videos ready for your easy access now with the new and improved before the bell reports candid coffee and lunch and learn replays plus each day's radio shows like technically speaking tuesday financial fitness friday and the latest analysis from lance roberts and michael lebowitz subscribe and bookmark our youtube channel for the real investment show or just click on the show links at realinvestmentadvice.com realinvestmentadvice.com The Real Investment Show thing I'll get into a little bit later on this morning is um, stock buybacks. Um, we have talked about those before, and I thought it was interesting over the weekend. Warren Buffett made a comment in his annual newsletter about stock buybacks, which was totally misinterpreted by the mainstream media. And of course, everybody in the mainstream media come out is like, he says economical, you know, people that 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 are against stock buybacks are economic illiterates. That's true. He did say that, but only specifically related to what he's doing, <laughs> not what's happening in the market in general. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But like I said beforehand, um, so in this weekend's newsletter, we talked a bit about yield curves. So a brief bit of history. And again, if you've been listening to the show for any length of time, we've discussed this before. So again, a little bit of this will be a, uh, a repetition but for people who are, are new to the show and haven't listened before or haven't heard our commentary on yield curves, this will be important for you to understand. So, first of all, what's a yield curve? A yield curve is the difference between two different yields. So, you take a look at the two-year Treasury yield this morning, currently yielding 4.83%. The 10-year Treasury yield is about 3.9%. So, the two-year Treasury yield is higher than the 10-year than the yield, and so therefore that yield curve, right, between those two yields is inverted. There's an inversion of those yields because theoretically if I'm loaning money to Brent 
uh, if I'm loaning money to him for a year or two years, in theory, I should charge him a lower interest rate than if I'm lending him money for 10 years, because the longer the duration of the loan is, the higher the risk of default becomes, particularly when it comes to Brent and his ability to pay debts. Uh, so that's just, that's just how it should work economically speaking, right? Interest rates should reflect duration, credits, those type of things, right? So now we're talking about a treasury bond here. So the, the risk of default is essentially nil. This is why we call treasuries risk-free. Now, people will argue with that considering we're about to have another big debt ceiling debate right now, and we're all going to be talking about defaulting on the debt, which isn't going to happen, but we'll all be talking about it. But so right now, these yield curves are inverted. Now, historically, now here's, here's the message from the mainstream media. The 10-year, two-year yield curve is inverted, and it can be the 10-year, three-month. It can be the five-year, one-year. You just, any two yields you can put together, you can see if they're inverted or not. The message from the media is, is the yield curves have inverted. That means that there's a recession coming, and so be prepared. We're about to have a recession, and this has all happened last year. And you'll remember that everybody last year was talking about this imminent recession. In fact, the Google searches for recession just shot through the moon. Everybody was expecting a recession last year. And on the show here, we said, hey, when everybody's expecting a recession, typically doesn't happen. It's a, it's a psychology thing. Now, and we put this in the, in the newsletter this weekend, the commentary has been talking about a no landing scenario, which is no recession at all. Those searches for a no searches for a no landing scenario have been taking off. Searches for recession are in a recession. There's basically nobody looking for a recession right now in terms of Google search trends. So now no one expects a recession. Why? Because, well, we had the yield curve inversion. Obviously, it's wrong this time because the yield curve inverted and we didn't have a recession. And so this is the first time in history, going back to like 1950, that the yield curve inversion didn't lead to a recession. But see, that's an incorrect statement. It's not the inversion that is the signal for a recession. What the yield curve tells you, when the yield curve inverts and goes negative, that simply just tells you that the economic environment is ripe for a recession, but you need some type of event, typically, to actually trigger the consumers into recessionary contraction. And we can go back in history and look at all the prior recessions. You know, we had an inverted yield curve prior to 2008, and then you had the recession come after. Also, the other fact of this is, is that when you look back in history, you can see the recessions as it overlays relative to yield curve inversions. But remember that the National Bureau of Economic Research, when they date that recession, is generally far after the fact. So how do you, so how do you know when to be worried about a recession? That's really when you're talking about yield curves, how do you know when to actually be worried about the recession? Well, it's when the yield curve uninverts is your signal. And the reason is, is that when the yield curve is uninverting, let's talk about what's happening in the economy at that point. Now, again, we have to realize that when the yield curve begins to uninvert, we still won't have an official recession. That still hasn't been dated yet. 
because the, the National Bureau of Economic Research, when we actually get into an economic recession in the U.S., the National Bureau of Economic Research will wait for data to be revised and, and a variety of other things. And they're generally six to nine months late after the recession officially starts. So they come back and they say, oh, yeah, the recession, it started in March of 2023. But we won't know that until December of 2023 or March of 2024, hypothetically speaking. So how do you know when to really start worrying? And when this comes to your investing portfolio, how do you really know when to start worrying about the impact of a recession on your investments? And that's when the yield curves begin to uninvert. So now, let's, as I said, let's talk about what happens when the yield curve is uninverting. Why is the yield curve uninverting? Right now, we know the yield curve is inverted because inflation is running hot. The Fed is hiking interest rates in the short end. That's the end of the curve that they control. They control the three-month, the one-year, the two-year treasury. If you take a look at Fed funds and a two-year treasury rate, they're basically interchangeable. They're very close to each other. Very high correlation. Now, once you get out on the longer end of the curve, that's driven by economics, inflation, and what's happening out there. So long end of the curve, those yields are controlled by what's happening economically. So economic growth, inflation, those type of things, that's what's, that's what's controlling the longer end of the curve. When the Fed begins, or let me back that up, when the recession begins to actually set in and the Federal Reserve recognizes that there is a risk to the economy, to, the, to financial conditions, et cetera, they'll begin to take action. When you begin, to, or I should say, if there's some type of financial event, right? Credit crisis, Lehman Brothers event, financial fallout of some sort, the Fed will begin to cut rates. Now, when the Fed begins to cut rates, they cut rates very quickly. As we said before, rate cuts, you know, the, 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 the FOMC policy is, is like the stock market. It's an escalator up and an elevator down. So this, these gradual rises, these gradual increases in interest rates lead to very sharp rate cuts very rapidly. And that's when they're trying to offset the impact of a recessionary drag or trying to offset the impact of a financial event on the markets and on the economy. So when you begin to see the, the, the yield curve uninvert, it's because the Fed is now in emergency action mode. And that's why yield curve uninversions are very sharp and very steep because of what's happening on that end. Now, is there a way that you could potentially tell that you're beginning to get to that point? Now, if you take a look at the 10-year, 2-year yield right now, that's not going to tell you anything because the 10-year, 2-year, again, longer duration, that's economic growth, that's inflation, which is still high right now. That yield curve is still steepening to the downside, right? It's getting deeper into that inversion territory. However, the 10-month, the 10-year, three-month yield curve is beginning to bottom. And what that's telling you is, is that now we're beginning to see potentially that the Fed getting to that point to where they're not hiking as aggressively, the, the yield curve is not rising as steeply here, and you're beginning to see that trough, that very early trough in the 10-year, 3-month Bill, when that occurs, and, and you can even go out further, if you look at the 30-year, three-month, it's even a, a, a bigger trough. That's mortgages at the 30-year. 
the reason that trough is important is because that trough is your leading indicator for the recession clock. Historically, when you see that trough, it's between six and nine months until the recession. So again, that just happened this month. So now let's go back to all those recession calls last year, right? Now everybody says, see, the yield curves are wrong. There's, there was no recession. Now everybody's going, hey, oh, thank goodness. We're in the no recession camp, but you're just now getting the signal for a recession six to nine months from now. But this is typical of psychology, and this is also typical of how the markets work. This is why, as we said last year, when everybody was expecting a recession, it was going to be, if we would have had a recession last year, it would have been the most well-forecasted recession in U.S. history. But that typically doesn't occur. You get recessions when nobody's predicting one. And we're starting to get to that structure now in the, in the economy and the markets. Nobody is expecting a recession. And that's good if you want one. <laughs> I don't know why you would want a recession. But if you're, if you're hoping for a recession, you know, this is, this is how you get set up for one. Now... From an investment standpoint, this is good for us to know and something that we have to watch closely because obviously during a recession, some things have to happen. And we'll talk about that on the other side of the break, and then we'll talk about stock buybacks as well. That's all coming up on the rest of this show this morning. It's the Real Investment Show. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. This conversation about yield curves, if you want to see all the charts, the graphs, the tenant stuff, it's all in the newsletter this weekend on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Be right back. Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. So uh, that realinvestmentadvice.com spot you just did? Yes. Yeah, I like the reverb on that. You, you, you like that? Did you have to shoot that in the bathroom? or I was uh, just beside myself. <laughs> Very crafty. Yes, thank you. Very crafty. Thank you. So just for the break, talking a little bit about the recession and that you're just now starting to get these kind of early signals that a recession is coming, right? So we're talking about this 10-year, three-month yield curve trough that is starting to show up. 30-year, three-month is more pronounced. Typically, that's a six- to nine-month lag time before the recession actually sets in. But even then, we won't know that until the National Bureau of Economic Research dates it later. But this is going to be, this is a bit of a conundrum, right, to a lot of investors because, again, we had the yield curve inversion and it's been hanging around for quite some time now. And it's, you know, getting deeper at this point. But we still haven't had a recession. So now the idea is like, well, it must be wrong this time, right? Because stocks are going up and 
Well, this can happen. Let's talk about what happens during the recession and why you need to pay attention to this because it will affect the stock market. We often talk about valuations. Valuations, 29 times earnings for stocks right now. And if we look forward, right, so, so one of the things that we did in 2000, really the late 90s, and if you were around back then, you'll remember this, but most investors today weren't, unfortunately. We began to shift from the type of earnings that we looked at. We used to only look at gap earnings, right? And so when you got a 10Q report, which is the quarterly report that a company produces when they report their, their quarterly earnings, it used to discuss in the, in, in the body of that 10Q, that was all gap earnings. This is, this is what we did based on generally accounted accepting principles. Here's our income, our expenses, et cetera. At the very back of the, the 10Q was the pro forma operating statement. And this is, and nobody paid attention to that because the reason is, is that's the operating earnings that we wish we would have had and would have had if everything had gone exactly right. And so it's kind of the pie in the sky stuff and, and everybody knew that. So nobody paid attention to it. Well, what Wall Street picked up on is that they could drive a lot more investment dollars into stocks if they started using operating earnings and forward operating earnings as the measure for judging valuations, right? If I tell you that stocks are grossly expensive, you're not going to buy them, right? If I'm trying to sell you a product, I'm like, hey, I'm going to sell you this product and it's really, really expensive. You're really overpaying for it, but you still want it, right? Well, of course not. Nobody would want it. So in order to market stocks better, especially IPOs, they came out and said, well, based on, yes, it's expensive right now. Yes, it's trading at 100 times earnings. But if they hit these fantastic earnings growth goals over the next five years, this stock will be super cheap. It'll be $20 a share, right? And so you go, okay, great. I'll overpay for it because I'm an idiot. And that's what we did. And so it became a great marketing tool. Now, when you look at a 10Q, it's all operating earnings in the first. In the very back of the 10Q, you've got to go find the gap, right? So it's now at the back of the book. But this is the environment we've, get, we've gotten ourselves into. And this is why we continue to overpay for earnings quite a bit. But this is the important part of this as it relates to yield curves and recessions. Those forward operating earnings, again, are the... I wish earnings. These are the earnings without all the bad stuff. I have another term for them that I can't use on the air because of FCC regulations, but that has to do with cows and other stuff. But <laughs> earnings on a pro forma basis are not very reliable because they don't account for things like a recession. So right now, if you take a look at earnings per share, Right, So analysts predict what they think earnings per share for the S&P 500 will be over the next year and into 2024. Analysts right now are expecting that earnings will trough this quarter and begin to improve over the next three quarters to the end of the year. However, so if you're buying stocks based on that assumption... You're, you're thinking you're buying stocks cheap now because earning, you're going to pay $10 for a stock today, but earnings are going to improve by the end of the year. So that's a cheap investment in theory. 
The problem is, is that when you have an economic recession, what happens to earnings? Where do earnings come from? Now, do earnings are earnings this magical thing that just kind of show up on a balance sheet in an income statement? Or do earnings derive from some other activity in the economy? So, in reality, earnings of companies are what happened after the revenue, which happens at the top line of the income. So, you look at an income statement, you have your gross income, subtract out your expenses, your payroll, all those other things, you wind up with earnings at the bottom. If the economy slows down, and considering that we're 70% based, roughly 70% based on consumption in the U.S. economy, if the economy slows down and goes into recession, what happens to the top of that income statement? Revenue will decline. If revenue declines at the top, how do you get to the bottom improving? So... If valuations are 29 times earnings now and we get into a recession, one of two things have to happen. Either valuations will go up more because the P is either stable or rising because the E is declining as earnings decline because of the recession. Or valuations are going to fall as both the P and the E are declining. In other words, the price of investments will fall to accommodate for lower earnings. And this is why during recessionary drags, valuation you have what's called a valuation reversion in the markets. Because it's now the price that now investors are repricing their investments for what they believe earnings are going to be in the future, which were less than what they originally anticipated. That's what yield curves are telling you is coming, is that repricing of earnings and markets and investor expectations and those type of things. So again, that's why it's so important. So, you know, I, you know, this is one of those indicators that is a, if look, you should never use a yield curve inversion as a market timing tool. They are terrible for that. It's like using price, it's like using price to earnings ratios to market time. The messages are so lagged and they can take so long to mature because of economic variables, market variables, Fed variables. They make terrible market timing devices. But this is what the media does constantly. They say, well, you know, valuations are 29 times earnings and the market didn't crash. So see, valuations don't matter. We heard that a lot in 2020, by the way. Yield curves are inverted, but we didn't have a recession. Markets didn't crash, so it must be wrong. The media looks at these as market timing devices. They are not market timing devices. They are terrible market timing devices. But what valuations tell you with clarity is what your forward expected returns on investments will be. If you pay too much for something, you're going to make less money in the future. It's just the if you overpay, look, if I go to buy a Toyota Camry and I pay $100,000 for a Toyota Camry and I try to resell it, I'm probably losing money, right? If I pay $500,000 for a house that is worth 250 and I go to sell it in the future, I'm probably losing money. 
That's all valuations are telling you. You're paying too much for the stream of earnings that these companies are making. This is my problem with companies like Coke and, and Procter Gamble and others. We own Procter Gamble in our portfolios, but it really bothers me that we own Procter & Gamble because this company grows earnings. They're a very steady earnings grower, but they don't grow earnings nearly fast enough or revenues fast enough to justify 30 times earnings. Coke, McDonald's, all these companies, Disney, way overpriced in terms of what they can actually generate. These are big, mature companies, right? And we're overpaying for them. So eventually, at some point, valuations and earnings will matter, but using them as a market timing device is a terrible idea. Dismissing them entirely is a worse idea for your portfolio. So that's why we pay attention to this stuff. Again, we manage portfolios on the short term. That's why we focus on technicals so much, right? We, every morning when we open the show, we talk about the market, where it is technically, those type of things, because that's what's telling us what's happening. That's the market psychology in the short term. That's the herd mentality at work. And we have to be aware and appreciate the overall psychology of the herd, even when they're completely stupid. But what valuations, what yield curves, those type of things tell us is where we're going to be in the future, which is why we pay attention to that as well. Because we know where we're headed, but we have to navigate the road to get to our destination. This is why my mother was the worst navigator ever when we used to drive on vacations. She never paid attention to the map. So we had lots of scenic tours around the country. Most people called it being lost, but... In her terms, it was a scenic tour. <laughs> In a roundabout way. <laughs> All right, quick break, come back. Stock buybacks, good, bad, economic illiterates. That's what Warren Buffett says. We'll talk about it right after the break. Don't go away. Confusion. Can't you hear the sound that's in the air? Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. <laughs> it's a sign of the times, my friends. Cocaine Bear has mauled Ant-Man 3 at the box office this weekend. Cocaine Bear? So it's a it's a new uh, film that has now come out from uh, wait uh, Elizabeth Banks, who is okay. the producer for this film. It stars funny, Ray, funny lady. It stars Ray Liotta, O'Shea Jackson Jr., and Alden uh, Ehrenreich, and it's the story about a bear that basically goes on a mauling rampage uh, after ingesting cocaine, and it's a horror <laughs> film, and it's now the the most viral horror comedies to hit theaters since Megan. Now, here's the interesting thing. It's a true story. Really? It is a true story. The event occurred back in, in September 1980. I had to look this up, by the way, because I, <laughs> I was like, this has got to be the stupidest movie ever. It's a true story. The event occurred back in September 85 when drug smugglers in the Tennessee wilderness 
accidentally dropped off a load of 40 plastic containers of cocaine from the twin-engine aircraft, and according to the New York Times. The smuggler, Andrew Thornton II, died when exiting the plane and his parachute failed to open. Two months later, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation found a near 200-pound black bear dead from ingesting over 75 pounds of smuggler's abandoned cocaine. The stomach, has, the, the bear's stomach yeah. apparently packed with $2 million worth of product. Oh. So they actually taxidermied this bear mm-hmm. for posterity's sake. Oh, so yeah. Anyway, they've now made a movie apparently about a bear that ingests cocaine and kills people and you know forgets to put out forest fires so it's a whole different turn on the revenant (laughs) exactly (laughs) so if you're interested in seeing a horror movie this weekend apparently go see cocaine bear so and i wonder if there's going to be a comparison to some market event that uh, would be considered a cocaine bear there don't worry i'm already (laughs) next article coming out (laughs) the cocaine bear market imagine those graphs (laughs) exactly (laughs) Uh, okay, so in the over the weekend, Warren Buffett came out with his annual letter to shareholders, and it was interesting because he made a very specific statement regarding stock buybacks, which he's been doing a lot of as of late. And he makes a statement about, well, people that don't like stock buybacks are just economic illiterates. And of course, now the media has taken off with this commentary saying see if you're against stock buybacks well then you're just you're just stupid right that's that's the idea before i get into his comment and how it was misread and mistaken by the media let's review for a moment what's been going on in the market since 2010 since 2010 stock buybacks have become the use du jour for companies to make their annual earning statements. In fact, if you take a look at the market advance from 2010 through 2022, 40% of the rise in the S&P is attributable to stock buybacks alone. Stock, uh, corporate stock buybacks have been, in many cases over several years, 100% of the net buyers of stock because they're doing such massive quantities. Apple, as a good example, has spent over half a trillion dollars buying back their own shares. So you think about that for a moment, right? Half a trillion dollars. You know, what else could you have done with half a trillion dollars? You know, R&D, research and innovation, buying other companies, you know, increasing dividends to shareholders, those type of things. Now, it's often said that stock buybacks are a return of capital to shareholders. Well, that's not true. Because a dividend is a return of capital to shareholders. Why? Because when the company issues a dividend, I get a check, right? I mean, there's a deposit in my account when that dividend is paid. So I am getting capital from the company. When a company does a stock buyback, I still have my shares. I didn't receive any cash. So there was, no, there was no cash returned to me as a shareholder unless I tender my shares for sale to the company, but you don't do that. You can do a stock buyback any day of the week by just putting your shares out on the open market and selling them. So if you want to convert your shares into cash, you can do that. 
If there was an open tender, which those happen from time to time, the company will tender for shares, you can sell your shares back to the company and they will give you cash for your shares. You'll get market value just as you would selling them in the open market, but you can sell your shares back to the company at a set price if you want and you'll receive cash. But now you don't longer have shares anymore. So you've sold your shares, just like selling them in the open market. So this whole idea that share buybacks or this return of capital really isn't true. According to an SEC regulatory investigation, they found out that the majority of individuals that sell shares during a buyback period were corporate insiders converting stock options, grants, restricted stock, et cetera, into cash. Again, since 2000, when Bill Clinton came in, so in 1998, 1999, Bill Clinton decided to attack this idea that CEOs of companies were too overpaid. So he capped CEO pay at a million dollars a year. The idea was, is was try to align corporate CEO pay with workers, right? It was, it was a good idea, right? I mean, it, 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 was, it was noble, right? He was trying to help the, the worker. Well, Wall Street, who is paid by corporations to figure out ways to do things, said, okay, that's fine. Pay yourself a million bucks and then grant yourself a bunch of stock. Do stock options, stock grants, restricted stock offerings, et cetera as your additional compensation. So take a million dollars in salary and take 20 million a year in stock. And then you can sell that stock later on, convert it to cash, and there's your compensation. And so the SEC said, fine, you've got to have a 10B1 plan, which you have to specify when you're going to sell these shares. And as we talked about just last week, now the SEC is coming back to investigate those 10B1 plans because insiders were going, well, here's my 10B1 plan to sell, but the price of the stock was wrong, so I'm going to cancel that one and issue this one. And they were manipulating the sell structure so they could capitalize on when they sold their shares. So this is why there's this big disparity now between CEO corporate wealth and C-suite executives and the workers because of all these other gimmicks that have been put into place by Wall Street for compensation. And this is why it's so important for stock prices to rise for, for CEO executives and why you know, they, they do things to try to encourage the company to beat earnings. In fact, a Wall Street Journal uh, story about two years ago dug into CFO releases during earnings statements and found that almost 40% of earnings are fudged in terms of cookie jarring reserves, using off balance sheet accounting, those type of things, in order to boost earnings to beat estimates that keep stock prices elevated. Now I can execute my stock buybacks. Okay, that's the story. So what did Warren Buffett say? When you were told, this is Warren Buffett's quote from his letter, when you're told that all repurchases, all being in italics, his notation, not mine. When you're told that all repurchases are harmful to shareholders or to the country, or particularly beneficial to CEOs, you are listening to either an economic illiterate or a silver-tongued demagogue, demagogue uh, characters that are not mutually exclusive, wrote Mr. Buffett. And of course, now what he was referring to was this new push to tax stock buybacks. Now, what he was referring to is his purchases of stock buybacks are not bad. That's what he's saying. Because okay? Warren Buffett's been buying a good bit of shares back. 
And this is because he doesn't have a better use for cash. Now, he's been buying some companies lately. They've gotten cheap, but there hasn't been a great use for cash. And he's sitting on $130 billion of cash. And he needs to put it to work. So one thing he can do is buy back shares, which he's been doing. But the issue becomes, again, when we take a look at how stock buybacks work and what the net effect have been, is not that all companies are doing what Warren Warren Buffett is doing. Jason Zweig, again, I've written, if you go to uh, realinvestmentadvice.com and just type in buybacks, you'll get two or three articles that I've written about buybacks and how they work in the economy. But... Jason Zweig, if you don't believe me, here's Jason Jason Zweig from the Wall Street Journal. It's not surprising that buybacks drew ire, he's talking about Warren Buffett also, over the past five years, according to the S&B Dow Jones, companies have spent $3.9 trillion repurchasing their own stock. Buybacks, this is Jason Zweig, buybacks are neither good nor bad. They are simply a tool. Just as you can use a hammer either to build a house or knock one down, buybacks are useful in the right corporate hands, in this case Warren Buffett, and dangerous in the wrong ones. In a buyback, company uses cash to repurchase some of its shares, typically at market price, from stockholders who choose to sell. But again, stockholders don't sell directly to the company. It's mostly insiders. As the Wall Street Journal has pointed out, in 2009, Citigroup repurchased more than $20 billion in shares from 2004 to 2008, right before it needed roughly $45 billion government funding during the financial crisis. We saw this with Boeing during the 2020 pandemic. Boeing had spent five years buying back their own shares, and as soon as the economy got into trouble, they had to go to the government begging for money to bail themselves out. The problem with buybacks is always the same, which is it's the least best use of cash for a company. And it's being used to to meet earnings in order to keep earnings above estimates that support stock prices and supports the corporate insiders. So again, the majority of buybacks made by companies are really neither good nor bad. In fact, as Jason Zawag points out, in the year following buybacks, investors generally lose money. So that wraps up the show for today. We'll have a more article. We'll have more on this discussion later, I'm sure. So <laughs> stick around for more of the Real Investment Show. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll see you back here tomorrow.